In einen anderen schlecht übersetzten Episode von Seeking Thumbness. Mein Name ist Laurie und ich bin mit meinen Kollegen, dem fantastischen Brie, dem wunderbaren Keith Rowe und dem dummen Patrick verbunden. <lacht> Hallo, es ist <lacht> ein Fruithersehen sein, Sackerl. <lacht> Haben Sie ein Zimmer? Bitte? Um, don't mention the war. I don't know. I don't speak any German. Ein Bier, bitte? <laughs> Mein Lieblingsbande sind Rammstein. <clears throat> Hello and welcome back, Tumnites, to another harrowing episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we murder not only accents, but languages too. <laughs> <laughs> we also read contemporary young adult fiction. But mostly murder accents and languages. <laughs> <laughs> it is our preferred uh, modus operandi. <laughs> We'd get the episodes out much more quickly if we only had to murder languages and not have to read anything in between. Oh, we should do a special episode that is completely in accents. How, <laughs> how many people can we offend and how quickly? My name is Laurie and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the Arschlock, Keith Rowe. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> That makes me the Sal Mensch, right? This is where you're going. <laughs> the Zao Curl, Patrick Moon. <laughs> Hi, thanks, Mama. <laughs> <laughs> and the Zao Mensch, Bree. Why, thank you, Hans. <laughs> this episode, we bear tear-stained witness to the life of Liesel Meminger in the international bestseller, The Book Thief, by Australian author Marcus Zusak. Yay, Australia! Before we revisit her joys and suffering... A warning. The days of waiting a week in anticipation of finding out who done it are long gone. Wikipedia or Blinkist can probably summarise it for you in a few lines. But the art of waiting does not need to be lost. This podcast episode isn't going anywhere and the nuance and beauty of this particular text deserves to be read. We need more readers. Be one. Pick up the book first and then come back to this one. Because we need more listeners as well. <laughs> <laughs> What did you say? Uh, Wikipedia and what? Yeah, what's this? Blinkist. Have you not been pinged by Blinkist on your various social media platforms? I've never heard of it. Not convinced that you haven't just created this company <laughs> as a startup and this is your subtle way of marketing it. Oh, everybody's talking about Blinkist, guys. Haven't you heard of it? What a genius idea. But I feel like I get marketed to by koala mattresses. Free shout out for you, Koala. And Blinkist, which says that managers read 10 books a year and how they do it is with this app. Managers read 10 books a year? Yes. That's not very many books. Big ideas in small <laughs> packages. Basically, they let you read the key lessons from over 2,000 books in 15 minutes or fewer. And you can only allow 150 minutes over the course of an entire year to read, to read 10 synopses? To read the synopses. That's correct. It's a pretty small boast. 
Are these boring non-fiction books? I suspect so. Gross. To be fair, I I try to read some of those and I would probably struggle to get through 10 a year. (laughs) I have really good intentions, though. Well, the problem with non-fiction is there is a distinct lack of elves. (laughs) So you read, like, self-help books and that kind of stuff. I tend to read a a few managerial-type books. I read a bit of self-helpy type kind of stuff and help other people, like, help themselves via you, which is kind of a self-help in some ways as well, I guess. Hmm. Anyway, go to Blinkist.com slash Tumnus now <laughs> and enter the coupon code. <laughs> or Koala Mattresses. It's as if thousands of listeners deleted their subscription and were suddenly silenced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Dankeschön, Bree. Let's sample a smidgen of the book with a reading of page one from Keith. Death and Chocolate. First the colours, then the humans. That's usually how I see things, or at least how I try. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. I am in all truthfulness attempting to be cheerful about this whole topic, though most people find themselves hindered in believing me, no matter my protestations. Please, trust me, I most definitely can be cheerful. I can be amiable, agreeable, affable, and that's only just the A's. Just don't ask me to be nice. Nice has nothing to do with me. Reaction to the aforementioned fact. Does this worry you? I urge you, don't be afraid. I'm nothing if not fair. Of course, an introduction. A beginning. Where are my manners? I could introduce myself properly, but it's not really necessary. You will know me well enough and soon enough, depending on a diverse range of variables. It suffices to say that at some point in time I will be standing over you. As genially as possible, your soul will be in my arms. A colour will be perched on my shoulder. I will carry you gently away. At that moment, you will be lying there. I rarely find people standing up. You will be caked in your own body. There might be a discovery. A scream will dribble down the air. The only sound I'll hear after that will be my own breathing and the sound of the smell of my footsteps. The question is, what colour will everything be at that moment when I come for you? What will the sky be saying? Personally, I like a chocolate-coloured sky. Dark, dark chocolate. People say it suits me. I do, however, try to enjoy every colour I see. The whole spectrum. A billion or so flavours, none of them quite the same. And a sky to slowly suck on. It takes the edge off the stress. It helps me relax. Thanks, Keith. When I first read this, I remember thinking... Hmm, was this really a book about Nazi Germany? And I had to go and reread the back of the book again to figure out what it was all about. It's missing for me the hook. I'm not that interested in death. I find that this type of narration generally is associated with my favourite type of fantasy book. So it's not enough of a hook for me. And I also found, until I got used to it throughout the book, the structure a little odd and disjointed. And it's hard to tell from a reading of page one how it's actually written here, but it's structured in an interesting way. Little notes, little bold-faced notes from death scattered scattered throughout. Yeah. Mm. And so they're asides, but I think it's really difficult to convey that from just reading it. Exactly. So for those reasons, it's not my favourite page one. I felt a little bit the same when I started reading it. I thought, oh, was this the book that somebody was telling me it was about Nazi Germany and a library, <laughs> and this doesn't seem like the right book, but the title is 
printed in bold font on the on the front of the book. So I was a little bit taken aback as well. I didn't really know what I was reading. And some of the language that Death uses, some of the description of the colours and things, when you first read that initial page, sound a little bit sophomoric in their complexity or their simplicity or something. It just sounds like it's trying very hard to do something and you're not really sure what it is yet. And that's not a stab at the author. It's just that initial opinion, I think. Laurie? (laughs) I really like the way that you worded that, Pat, because I had similar thoughts in a very different way. (laughs) I I didn't really like the narrator at this stage, and I hardly want to bring the tone of the show down from the lofty heights of taste from which we normally orate, but death really is a bit of a tosser at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe death is a bit sophomoric. He's trying to be very literary and complex and introspective. I was at once worried that I'd have to slog through six million pages of pretentiousness. It's a long book. Holy crap, it's a long book. Mm. And gleeful that I'd get to stick it to Keith once more. (laughs) (laughs) You'll find something else, don't worry. Keith was running late tonight too, so it's worth mentioning that all of the scores we give this book are going to have minus one deducted from them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of petty people we are. <laughs> Keith, were you having a bit of the old uh-oh spaghettios here? Or? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't what I was expecting and I struggled a bit to match the cadence of reading it, which probably came across in my page one reading there because it was a little while ago that I started reading this book as we've all alluded to, it's quite long. So I'd kind of forgotten how we were introduced to the book and it's a bit of an interesting one and not expected. So I wasn't quite there yet, but I was happy to read on. Sounds like we're all a little bit thrown by this introduction. Mm. It was really the the discussion about colours that I thought was just a bit too highfalutin, a bit too artsy. Would you say it doesn't pass the pub test, Laurie? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I just, yeah, I I didn't really know where we were going and fortunately it gets better from there. Yes, why don't you tell us how it gets better, Laurie? Tell us the synopsis. With Death as the swiftly improving narrator, we follow the trials and tribulations of Liesl Meminger. I hope I'm saying Meminger right. But anyway, the scene, Molking, Molching, Molking, 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 Molking. (laughs) That sounds very right. (laughs) On the outskirts. Of Munich, World War Two, as fascism rises, young Liesel is forced into the care of foster parents, Hans and Rosa Huberman. Having witnessed her brother's death on the train ride and then forcibly fostered away from her communist mother, Liesel is off to a rough start. Her gentle, kind new papa, Mr. Tom, I mean Hans, <laughs> and the foul-mouthed but kind inside mama, Take care of her as she becomes accustomed to her new life. The political upheaval and threat of bombs do not make for easy living, and aided by the boy next door, she becomes a thief to supplement a slim diet. She has also stolen a book and becomes entranced by the power of words as Papa teaches her to read. When opportunity presents, she will steal books again, snatching them from Nazi bonfires and a rich person's library. Liesel learns firsthand the threat that rising fascism can pose to good people as her foster parents hired a Jewish man named Max, putting the family in danger. If the grim threat of war, Nazis, hunger and hiding a Jew in their basement was not enough to squeeze your heart, then our narrator, the Grim Reaper, reminds us 
often that he's not yet done collecting souls. I was wondering how far you'd go, whether we needed to give away the end or not. Hmm, I think I'll leave that up to you. Keith, how'd this book end up on our collective bookshelves? Well, it's been on my periphery for a long time, and I don't even remember when or where I first heard about it. It was in my sights basically because of how well regarded it is. Everything I've heard about it was positive, and I do also have a lapsed fondness for modern history. So the fact that this is a historical work of fiction made me want to read it even more. And there's no fantasy to be found here, folks, which is generally where I look for books. It's a book being narrated by death who's talking about how he ferries souls away. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) No, I wouldn't put it in the fantasy genre either. No, not a chance. Mm. I actually went to add this to the list quite some time ago and was shocked to see that it was already there and had been added by none other than Laurie. So I marked it as out of bounds for my selection. No, 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 no. (laughs) Exactly. Nothing better than thieving books. Right. Mm. Because it kept popping up in aspects of my life. It'd be prominently positioned in a bookstore or I'd read a reference to it in an article or I'd see someone reading it on a train and eventually... You'd talk about it with the man you're hiding in your basement. (laughs) 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 And eventually when I saw that Laurie was thieving a Susan Cooper book away from Brie, I knew that the time was right to strike. And I did. (laughs) And here we are. Okay. It's a bit of an eye for an eye situation. Exactly, yes. I was guaranteed stars for this one. You bastard. <laughs> well, you just took so long to you took so long. I was waiting and waiting for you you to select it. But fantasy and then more fantasy and then more fantasy. It was like, well, it's not gonna happen. Wasting his time with fantasy. <laughs> yes. So Laurie, was haben Sie gedacht? Oh. Was ist dein Menung? Was sind dein Gedanken? Ooh. What did I think? Ja. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, this book was good. (laughs) This book was rocks in the heart, lumps in the throat, quiet, dignified, but persistent crying on the train, good. I fell in love with everyone, even death, who I was scared of from page one. Each and every character added something significant to the story and the passing of certain characters that I'll let somebody else spoil if they like, created painful, aching holes in my heart. I think it might be the best thing we've read on Seeking Tumnus. I think I could potentially bang on for hours about this book, and we all know Keith will, so I'll try and sum up (laughs) (laughs) what I I liked in a few points. Firstly, the nuances and gravity of the characters and their decisions. There was enough repeated interactions to get a real taste of diversity of the characters. And we do see a lot of layers peeled back on that main ensemble as we flick back and forth between the current goings on for those characters and the brief stories that Death shares about them, sometimes from the past, sometimes in the future. Secondly, a use of Death as the narrator, especially the regular forewarnings that he provided. The warnings did nothing to soften the blows and that ability of death to be in all timelines at once actually made for a more compelling read than a simple linear narrative. And lastly, the setting. I was a bit worried I was going to be reading another concentration camp-based book. Instead, we got a feeling of how the German people may have lived through the rise of fascism and how some retained their compassion and humanity, how quite a lot didn't, how their lives were affected 
and how the power of words could affect small and large groups in different ways. The metaphors are very plainly revealed by the author, I think, but their deep currents really moved me, so I enjoyed them. I don't really want to say much more than that. I didn't know the author was Australian, and I'm very, very impressed with the gravity and sometimes delight that Zuzak gifted us in this book. Did you also read that he is he's based this on his parents' memories of the Holocaust? Yeah, I watched a brief interview and he mentioned that one event that happens in the book where a large group of Jewish people are marched through the centre of town and initially they thought they were cattle. Mm. It was cattle rumbling through the town, but it turned out to be this people and how there was an old man that was shuffling along and barely able to walk and falling down and how one young boy rushed off to back to his home to grab some bread and came back and gave it to that elderly man on the ground and who then grabbed his ankles and cried and thanked him mm. before the boy was beaten up by the Nazi soldier standing nearby or whipped or something. And, yeah, it was part of the story and it's obviously something that he's pulled from his parents' past. And, uh, mm. yeah, I think that added a bit of gen- genuinity, genuineness, whatever it is. Mm. It's not something that you read often about what happened in Nazi Germany. Surely not all of the Germans were of one mind, even if the power of populism and things can sweep you in a particular direction. Trump is a reasonable modern day example of that, I guess. But it's also a really interesting study, I think, given that Marcus Zusak was quite young when he wrote this. He was sort of only 30 or something like that, which is... Depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Quite depressing, yes. (laughs) Yeah, true. But it's really a remarkable book. But one of the interviews that I read with him, which was from the book's 10th anniversary, talks about how he really only thinks that he has one novel like this in him, that it was three years of writing this that were intense and that he's not sure that he could ever write something again of quite that gravity. And you kind of understand he leaves it all out on the table and it is so finely interwoven that the tales of these people that I don't know that you could. (laughs) Could you? Mm, Isn't that the great tragedy of being an artist or an author that you know sometimes, probably not always, but sometimes you know when you've done your best work (laughs) Mm. and then everything after that is dissatisfaction? Mm. That's just lose meaning. Sometimes you wish some people could could be a bit more aware of when they've done their best work. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like thirty six? Uh, what's his name? The guy that wrote Magician, Raymond E. Feist, book Slater. Uh, You're like, mm, yeah. maybe you've hit the wall there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Five or six books into the Famous Five series, maybe. <laughs> Certainly there could never be enough Hardy Boys books, but (laughs) of course. (laughs) That's a tale for another episode. (laughs) I generally actively avoid texts like this these days, just as much as I avoid movies like this that are going to give me extreme emotional reactions because I feel like... You're a sop. Yeah, I'm basically a sop. Yeah, it's a a very good expression. I don't feel like I have to read something to bring me down. I'd like to keep it all peppy and happy, thanks. But gosh, I'm glad that I read this one in my lifetime twice now. And I absolutely smashed it. So I think of the four of us, I was the earliest to finish. And it was probably three or four weeks ago now. By weeks, yes. 
Yeah, I finished it about 45 minutes ago, so you definitely <laughs> beat me. <laughs> yeah, and Laurie was sobbing on the on the way into work this morning, so <laughs> not that far ahead. But, gosh, I am glad that I have read this. I, I like the message in it. I like that Liesl, the main character, is surrounded by so much suffering. Her father is taken away from her because he's a communist. Her mother is presumably tarred with that same brush. So she adopts out her kids, so Liesl and her brother, to this family. Her brother dies on the train on the way to the foster family. The first thing that happens to her in this new place is that she's ordered to call the mum and dad effectively, you know, separating her. She gets beaten up. Like there's all of these horrific things that happen. She's separated from this Jewish man that they end up sheltering in their basement and he's he just disappears one night and oh there's just all of this stuff that is just horrific and in the end there's this message of hope this girl who is so resilient can find good in the world and see things differently and I think that's a message that's really important some of my other favorite things were those innocent moments that you try and find in your family whether it's dancing around the kitchen in your own house but for them it was having a snowball fight in the basement where they brought all of this snow downstairs and it conjures up this amazing imagery of a family playing and enjoying each other's company. And those sweet moments in what is an incredibly bleak time in Germany, they're all starving. Germany's increasingly losing the war. They see all of these depressing, horrible parades of Jews going through their town on their way to concentration camps. Death is there helpfully narrating the number of Jewish souls that he's picking up and trying to carry with him. Those sorts of moments just show that there there can be moments of beauty in amongst great horror. I agree with you about all of the characters, Laurie. They are all lovable in their own way. Rosa is a hard woman to love at the start. This is the one who is Liesl's mother, but she has her own way of demonstrating her love for Liesl over time. And her husband. And her husband. That you think she's a bit hard on early on, but she certainly cares very deeply for him. Mm. Even though she's continuously calling him and everyone else a bastard. (laughs) (laughs) And I also really liked Death. So despite my initial reluctance, because that introductory chapter is really It's really not good. It doesn't hook you in at all. But the way that death tells the story from their perspective, that they feel this degree of empathy for the people that they are taking away. And in particular, death is fascinated by Liesl right from the beginning. When he goes to get the soul of Liesl's brother, he notices Liesl then and he follows her because the people around her continually die throughout the novel. And he comes very close to her on several occasions, but As it turns out, she does, do I give that away? She does live to the end of her life. She lives a long life despite all of the suffering along the way. And that's Most most of us do live to the end of our life. (laughs) Yes, fair (laughs) fair point. But she does live a long life as well, Hmm. as we discover. One thing that I did like about death is that although the first chapter didn't really work with, in my opinion anyway, the discussion of colours, I think what the author was trying to do was build death up to being an empathetic character and I don't think the colours was the right way to go about it but I really do like that death does or can be affected by his duty Mm. and he tries to ignore humanity as much as he can because otherwise he would be overwhelmed but he just couldn't help following the course of this girl's life and that was something special to him and special to us. Hmm. 
I think the whole colour thing did a good job in making death a little bit other. He was not quite a person. He was not quite human. He had this perception of the world and perception of situations that was very skewed and very different to what we might expect from somebody else living in that moment. And perhaps part of why that was so jarring at the beginning was because it's unfamiliar. It's not really what you're expecting to hear or expecting to see described, but it gradually has become more accustomed to his character and his perception and his take on the situations. It it starts to work a little bit better, I think. Mm. Are you saying it was too fantasy too fast? It may it may have been too fantasy too fast. <laughs> I read a bit of criticism about death that people were saying that Death spends a lot of time telling rather than showing. But I didn't find that jarring at all. I felt that that just added to the character of death or the way that it was personified. I I didn't find that at all. Didn't anybody else have that feeling? I didn't have that at all, especially because death is meant to be actively telling you the story. Yes. It's... The way that the novel is set out is it's this mm. almost mm. it feels like a fireside conversation with death as he relays mm. this narrative for you. And there are times when death, when the narrator steps back completely and it's very much entirely show and no tell whatsoever. And he comes back in and back out at various points based on the needs of the narrative. I wouldn't level that criticism at it at all. No, I absolutely loved it. Everybody should read this book. Pat? I agree with that. I think this is why people write books, is in the hopes of coming up with something like this, because it is nearly perfect in every respect. It is an absolutely phenomenal book. And it taps into such heavy material. It doesn't shy away from the aspects of the war that are brutal and horrific and horrible and the death and destruction. And the way that it's framed with death as this clinical narrator for these kinds of events where he talks about the gas chambers and he talks about people trying to claw their way out of the chambers as they're being killed. And he talks about gathering up 45,000 victims of bombings in a single night. And then the switch to the real micro level in the little details of the people that are involved in the populace with Liesl and Rudy and all all of these beautifully fleshed out characters. It works so well because you get this grand overarching view of the world at war and this grand view of Germany and of Hitler and of the communities and it just scales down, it scales down, it scales down and then you get the people and they're all so perfectly characterised and perfectly fleshed out and perfectly relatable, even the ones who you don't like very much. It's it's beautiful. It just blows me away and I think it has to be probably the best book that we have done on the podcast because it has to be one of the best books that I have read. It's and I can't believe that he he was so young when he wrote it. It's ridiculous. It's so frustrating because you just hope that you, as a human being, that you could have something inside you like this because it's perfectly balanced, it's perfectly delicate, and it shows you the best and worst of people, and it is all so completely believable. I can't say enough about it. I could just rail and rant in a positive way fashion about this book for hours because there is nothing that I didn't like about it and you get to the end and it's one of those ones where you just it just feels like it's going to sit with you for as long as you can remember it's yeah woof it's it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> how did you go with the length 
Oh, it was long. I find it really hard to read stuff at the moment. I have so much going on in my life that reading increasingly is something that I don't know if I can even say increasingly. Just over the past few years of adult life, reading is one of those things that just gets bumped out and it's really hard to find the time or the focus or the concentration to sit down and engage with something, especially something of this length. And so what I found myself doing was taking fairly big chunks out of it. There would be times where I would say, no, I'm going to sit down for a couple of hours with the book thief and I'm just going to carve it out. And so even though I read it over a long period of time, I think I read it in a couple of sittings over that period of time. And I thought it was as long as it needed to be. It didn't overstay its welcome. It was it was 600-some pages, my copy, and mm. I felt that that was completely fine. It really did go into a lot of detail. It fleshed out a lot of tiny little incidents. In a lot of ways, the tiny little incidents were where the majority of the page length was devoted, and then Death would be throwing out these little remarks about the grand scale, bigger picture stuff. I agree, but I do wonder whether some younger audiences might find 600 pages a fairly big mountain to climb. No, kids have got all the time and energy in the world to (laughs) burn through books like this, don't they? I certainly Mm. could get through books like this better as a younger person than I can now as an adult. (laughs) It is long. Some young people might struggle with it, but Mm. they should read it. They really should read it. Before we move on to Keith, I just want to tell you, Patrick, because I've known you for some years and I've seen the fruits of some of your artistic endeavours and I just want you to know that I think you make one of the best chocolate mousses that I've ever seen. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so be proud of that. <laughs> I shall release my chocolate mousse unto the world. <laughs> Keith, what did you think and, and were you as stricken with an artistic inferiority as I was. Having thought of it just now, yes, I certainly am. There's no way I'm coming up with anything, even one quarter of the calibre of this fine work of fiction. Everything everyone has said so far has been spot on the money. This is an amazing book. In terms of the length, there was nothing here that should have been taken out. So I don't think we can criticise that, whereas others that we've had, we've levied that criticism against have had sections that were unnecessary. This Every piece of the puzzle was necessary to tell the story as it's told. The themes in this, there's so many and they're so well played out, but identity and love moored in the ocean of suffering, mortality and despair, it really served to highlight the courage and self-preservation necessary in this time. Particularly interesting for me was the way in which people find comfort in trying times, whether that's through stealing books or reading or playing and listening to the accordion, as is the case for many around Hans. Death as the narrator of the story, which means we're constantly brought back to the mortality of everyone in the tale. That's at once terrifying and unifying. Death is the great equaliser. It doesn't discriminate. I think it was a pretty clever choice by Marcus Susak, as with Death as the narrator, it allows us to see not only Liesl's world in mulching, mulking, whatever it is, it's not a real place, so it doesn't matter how I say it, but also <laughs> the world beyond that. They, they, I think death specifically tells you how to pronounce it, though. So in that, in that sense, oh, okay. I think uh, you will be called out and hounded down and shot. <laughs> <laughs> However, we've been told by the author how to pronounce uh, Lou, and you guys still resist, so. Oh, John Connolly. John Connolly. Yeah. <laughs> We see the world not only through Liesl, but also the world beyond that and everything that death sees. 
Liesel throughout the story effectively makes acquaintance with death, even though it's largely unknowing on her behalf. Death certainly, as Bree mentioned, sees something in Liesel and is constantly aware of her presence. And we find out at the end that just how death is able to tell the story through Liesel's eyes, it's because he's in possession of the book telling her story which we see so often in books, but I think here it's the most effective version of that that I've ever seen, in that in the latter stages of the book, Liesel begins to document her own story, and before anyone's had a chance to read it, devastation rains down on her street and the book is effectively lost. And it's only in her death that she's reacquainted with it, and that was a pretty special moment, one of many special moments in the book. I'm glad Laurie was very guarded with his words because everyone really should read this. We say that about a lot of books, but it's most true about this one. So if you haven't listened to us before, you should listen to us now and (laughs) read the heck out of this book. Mm. It's poetic the way that Liesl's saved by her words in the devastating bombing that takes out her entire street. And we can trace that back through Max, through Papa, through her brother, when she stole her first book at his burial and that's effectively establishing the fabric with which she tells her tale and as with any good book there's a message or many messages the one that stood out most here for me is to make the most of what you have and to seize every opportunity to live my heart breaks a little when i think of rudy's want for an innocent but meaningful kiss from liesel and that moment where she was prepared to give it but didn't Mm. or the subsequent moment where she found herself longing for it but didn't get it. Man, those feels. Oh, big time. So many tears. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not one to cry in books generally, but this was a real tearjerker all the way through. Just because Mm -hmm. in, I think in some ways, because it was moored so effectively in reality that this is stuff that happened. This is real misery that was inflicted on so many people for years and years. It's just mind-boggling and Mm. upsetting and distressing and I think those are all really important things to feel occasionally. Yeah it's almost unbelievable the suffering that this book tells of and the suffering unfortunately is not fiction. I will say that I really liked the way he intertwined German phrases through the book. It kept reminding you where they were and it gave it a connection to the place that wasn't a hindrance when you were reading it as someone that doesn't speak the language so that was really effectively done much better than well slightly differently to authors like Cormac McCarthy who weave in large portions of Spanish into their books and you're just shit out of luck if you don't actually speak Spanish (laughs) as someone who's reading it because they never explain what the characters are saying and it's great it feels very authentic they're like oh you're talking Mm. to someone from Mexico so of course course they're going to speak Spanish but at the same time you think well it's an English language book and it would really be nice to know what's going on. That's very exclusionary. Yeah so this did it well. Yeah it was good I liked it we kept having that through it and it was fun in that many of the words were these German swear words or these mild swear words in Salkirl and Salmensch, Arschloch. Yes. Now, this is Laurie's favourite topic, is swearing in German. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's got a few newbies. (laughs) I'm well out of practice because many years ago in high school I studied a bit of German and it was actually fun for me to read the words and have a pretty good idea of what they meant or know what they meant in a lot of cases and then be rewarded with the the translation immediately afterwards. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) 
It's the payoff of those years of study. Yeah. I don't have anything more to say about this book except it was a fine choice by both Laurie and me. (laughs) (laughs) But mainly you, who gets all of the points. (laughs) We'll see about that once the points have been deducted at the end of the the episode. (laughs) The tardiness. I'm not bothered by that. One other thing I really liked about it, which I had forgotten about in my stupor, I suppose, my my overwhelming enjoyment of the book, was the little mixed media components of it, which I have traditionally not liked very much in some of the previous books we've done and other books I've read. I find it a bit distracting and irritating sometimes when it breaks out of the normal narrative flow to give you a little piece of something else. But this book had some illustrations and bits and pieces that were actually gorgeous and simple and added so much to the text. They were so, mm. so beautiful and poignant and perfectly placed. And yep. it's again, it just stuff I wouldn't change anything at all. It, it worked so beautifully. It flowed so beautifully and it really contributed to the overall text where I feel it's so easy for that to not be the case. People have these nifty ideas about what they're going to add, how they're going to enhance the narrative, how they're going to add verisimilitude to the narrative by this evidentiary kind of process. But here it worked so well. You felt almost a little bit privileged to be flicking through these pages that are entirely fictional but have been given Mm. such gravity by the surrounding story. I just remembered one thing I have to criticise. Yeah. (laughs) I found it so, so hard to read on the Kindle the book which Max creates for Liesl. Which is handwritten and... Tiny. Yeah. Tiny, really difficult to read on a Kindle. This book in particular, yeah. I think you yep. should read a physical copy. Also, if you can get the copy that I have, which was the anniversary edition, it is one of the nicest hardcover books in my collection. It's, it's so gorgeous and it has a bunch of stuff from the author at the end as well. It's got interviews and it's got photocopies of his original notes mm. and plot outlines and chapter summaries and things like that. It's actually a really, really, really nice hard copy book. So in addition to, to those problems. Better, do you think, than the anniversary edition of Twilight? Are they on the same shelf? Do they do a gender bender if you flip it upside down? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe uh, Marcus Zusak, if you want to get in touch with us, we can see what we can do about making that happen. We can throw some ideas (laughs) your way. Uh, Could you imagine if he actually did listen to some of this? I didn't realise he was Australian until I got to the end and they started talking about Sydney for some reason. I thought, that's unusual. And then I looked him up and I would love to talk to him. I would love to hear more about this book. So maybe we need to Mm. hound him down and see if we can do a special (laughs) episode because this, this was properly special. We will just briefly mention that there is a movie that none of us have had a chance to watch. If- I don't know that I want to, to be honest. Surely it can't be as good as the book. It's meant to be well, very good. It won't be as good as the book. Mm. But it doesn't have to be as good as the book to still be pretty damn good. Yeah, mm. true. If we get around to watching it collectively, then maybe we'll make another short episode. There might be three episodes for this damn book. <laughs> That's how much we love it. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. I watched the preview before this and it looks gorgeous in the cinematography and the setting and it's got Jeffrey Rush in it and got all the ingredients to be fantastic. You do need Jeffrey Rush to make a good film, really. 
Aren't, aren't many good films <laughs> abounding that don't have Jeffrey Rush in them? <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean 27. Two? Yeah. Oh, God knows. Well, let's move from gushing and poignancy to scoring with Pat. Perfect. Okay, so I'm going a, a book-themed scoring system today and you, you're never going to remember any of them, so I guess just remember the numbers. So one star, this book is a dark brown, an itchy toothbrush moustache and literally worse than Hitler. I suspect probably not going to be a popular choice. <laughs> Two, the book is red, like welts from the wooden spoon or the whip. A little bit of mama, but mostly Nazi. Three, the book is grey and blue, smoke on a summer's day. Like, he's kind of an okay guy, but do you want him to come knocking on your door? It's death. Four, it's black and gold, mischievous and beautiful, like Rudy Steiner hurtling down the field in blackface as Jesse Owens. Or five, <laughs> this book was wartime and cigarettes, the black and white teeth of an accordion, and a gentle soul like Hans Huberman. Who's going first? I'll go first, and I'll take a point off for my tardiness, and it's a five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Laurie? Yeah, it's just, it's simply perfect. I haven't enjoyed a book more doing Seeking Tumnus, so five stars. Brie? Mm, it absolutely has to be five stars. In fact, I think every other book that I have rated needs to drop a half a star <laughs> to give this. <laughs> to give it a bit of space at the top of the spectrum. It really does. It is the only one that has truly merited those five stars. Okay. Well, I feel like uh, you don't need a, an absolute kind of system and there can be a bit of relativity to your ratings, but I... I'm also on board with that. I think it's a five. It's a definite five. It's a total mm. undisputable five. And it could have been mine. <laughs> <laughs> so close, Laurie. <laughs> we've got some stats, listeners. We've recorded all the ratings and we've got all sorts of metrics like... Who brings the best book? Yeah, what's the <laughs> average um, rating per person that's chosen the book and who's your worst enemy in terms of who's rated your books the lowest over time. We'll have to share them at some point once we've got the maths right. Yeah. It's pretty telling that I choose some <laughs> books that are not well received. Are you, are you feeling that there's been a campaign of discrimination against you, Keith? Or No, not at all, not at all. <laughs> I've just chosen some things a bit more blindly than others maybe. This wasn't one of them. This one's like number three on Time Magazine's 100 Best Young Adult Books of All Time. What are number one and two? Well, I was about to say number <laughs> number two is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, good good okay. call, I guess. I mean, I probably I, this might be sacrilegious, but I probably prefer the Book Thief. But I can see why Harry Potter is up there. Is up there, and number one is the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. Hmm. I have never heard of that book before in my life. I have never heard of that before either. I feel that this must be some kind of post-1998 book, which one of us should put on the list. And number four, interestingly, mm. is A Wrinkle in Time, and I am at risk of pinching that from you, Patrick, unless that gets up anytime soon. Okay. Well, our next book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Do tell. Uh, no, let's do it. Let's do a wrinkle in time. 
Let's do a wrinkle in time. Let's do it. Fantastic. Brie, Brie wants it. The people have called for a wrinkle in time and they shall receive. Thanks all for listening. A quick PSA about Facebook. Apparently Facebook has been randomly deleting our old posts. We haven't determined the rhyme or reason yet, but if you're looking for our back catalogue, you can find all of the old episodes via Apple Podcasts, on an Android alternative such as Pocket Casts, on SoundCloud, or finally, directly from our website, seekingtumnus.com. Next episode, we will be apparently reading A Wrinkle in Time by... <laughs> Woohoo! Madeleine DeLong. Uh, that's how I would have said it. Just roll that L around <laughs> in your mouth like a delicious candy, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I'm on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, if you're a xenophobic, nationalist, fascist pig intent on burning something, then do us all a favour. Put the books aside, douse yourself in whatever ignites best, and keep burning. I didn't realise he was Australian until I got to the end and they started talking about Sydney for some reason. I thought, that's unusual. Man, this was properly special. Mm, it really is. And it's shocking that you two didn't know that. Shame on you. Well, you obviously didn't read my <laughs> Love Oz YA tag on my Twitter post from a few weeks back.